Hey. Hey. <laughs> What's up? Hot chocolate. <laughs> yeah, okay, we have hot chocolate, slightly expired marshmallows that are not melting. Um, so that's interesting. But I'm really excited for this episode. So we're going to talk about Amelia Earhart. Before I do that, though, I want to tell you about something really, really cool I got to do. I got to meet Temple Grandin. Do you know who that is? Yeah, I do. Do you really? Yeah, she... I'm sorry, I have marshmallow in my mouth. <laughs> okay, pause. Huge marshmallow. I'll just continue. <laughs> she made cows' lives better. She did, yeah. So she was... For anyone listening that doesn't know who she is, she was super, super instrumental in, like fixing the cattle industry, making it better, making it more humane for the cows, but also like more efficient for the businesses. Um, because if the cows were treated better, they had less cattle death and they could make more money and it was just yeah. good all the way around. Tell that to fair life. Yeah. We'll, we'll circle back to that. No, we won't. We'll just move on. <laughs> um, yeah. There's one sponsor we can check off our list in the future. Not fair life. Such a shame. They have the best chocolate milk, but are not nice to their cows. But anyway, so Temple Grandin, um, she, like I said, she had a lot to do with the agriculture industry, but she also has autism. And so she has done a lot of work like advocating for autism awareness and like teaching people how to help people with autism. And I got to go to a, um, like a presentation by her and hear her talk. And it was so cool. And I got to take a picture with her and get a book signed and if anyone is unfamiliar with her, I highly recommend watching the HBO movie. It's just called Temple Grandin. It goes through her life and shows like how um, she was diagnosed when she was a kid. And at the time, I think she's like 76 now. So when she was a child, the only thing they did for people with autism was like put them in an institution. There was no really understanding yeah. of it. There wasn't any treatment or um, therapy. People didn't know oh, what to do. Shout out uh, our Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum episode. Right, yeah. So there, there weren't really good options. But her mother um, advocated for her, and she said she didn't want to do that because she thought if she let that happen, she would never see Temple again. So she said no to that. And there was some conflict between her mom and her dad over it, but her mom wouldn't let her go to the institution. And so she uh, really worked with her at home and got her in good schools that helped her. And Temple talks about how her elementary school teachers were great. She had a hard time in middle school and high school because she was bullied a lot um, because she was different than everybody else. And she got expelled from one school because a girl was being mean to her and she threw a, a social studies book at her head. Yeah. They expelled her for it. That's but what we like to see. That ended up being good because it got her into a school that really knew how to help her. And so she talks about this science teacher that she had that really made a big difference because he understood how she thought and let her do like hands-on projects and get her into things that she liked. And then when she was, um, also when she was a teenager, she got to stay at her, with her aunt one summer and her aunt and uncle lived on a farm. And that's where she found out she was really interested in cattle. And so she explains that the way she thinks is that she thinks in pictures. So anytime she thinks about something, she visualizes it like in a series of photographs. And because of the way that she thinks and the way that she sees things, she was able to see the world from the cow's point of view. And she could like physically get down, she would get down on their level and like see what the cows were seeing from their viewpoint. And she was able to figure out what was spooking them and like what was upsetting them and why they were doing the things they were doing. And she came up with all these inventions 
that like helped the cows feel more calm and safe and stuff. And so there was less injury and it was really, just really interesting. And so she got super big in the agriculture industry. She wrote for magazines. She wrote a ton of books. Um, she got a doctorate degree. So she's actually Dr. Temple Grandin. And she like goes around and gives speeches about agriculture, but also about autism and like different ways of thinking and stuff. And it was just super cool. So I'm very still excited about that. So uh, check out, you know, her Wikipedia article, watch the movie Temple Grandin. She's really awesome. Big inspiration. That's cool. Yeah, it was cool. Love cows. <laughs> I want to get, did we talk about this on the podcast that one time that I want to get some of those woolly cows from? Yeah, we did talk about that. You just wanted to live alone with your Highland cows, I think they're called. Yeah. The hairy ones. Yeah, the hairy ones. They're neat. Yeah. And they're orange. Yeah. <laughs> Are not, they look nice. They look like, uh, just look nice. Yeah. Look what I got. What is that? I saw you playing, fidgeting with it. This is out of your, this thing that you gave me. Okay, to play so with? It, it is a giant sharp piece of metal. Yes. My thought was correct. I, was, I thought that was a strap of it metal. It was broken, and you so you wouldn't let me play with it, and then I found there was a hole in it, and so I pulled the whole thing out of there. <laughs> oh my gosh. So uh, what Shane's talking about, uh, I have, or the, the girls will know, it's, like, it's called a ponio. And it's basically like a bendable scrunchie almost, oh, yeah. kind of like a slap bracelet sort of that's connected. And it broke on the inside and wouldn't hold my hair anymore. So I've been letting Shane use it as a fidget toy. And now he just pulled the whole metal piece out of it. Yeah. Playing with a sharp piece of metal. I'm going to mail this to the prison. Gonna, <laughs> don't, I don't do that. <laughs> I highly recommend you don't do that. <laughs> You're going to end up in the prison. All right. Do you want to um, say anything before we get into the episode? Yeah. Go for it. Um. So, okay. <laughs> Good. I realized the last episode, I forgot to mention something, is that we've played this sound on the podcast before, but the ha-ha-ha sound was also from the guy. So, I'm realizing now I didn't pull it up before we started the episode. Wait, so. what? what? What did you just say? Hold up. Okay. The sound. Yeah, explain that again. You didn't finish a sentence, I don't think. <laughs> the ha-ha-ha sound is from the same guy, this one. What same guy? Ha ha ha. From Paul Harrell. Oh, that you talked about from the YouTube channel? Yep. Oh. His, and we've played it before, and I forgot to mention it last time. Ha ha ha. Small world. Mm-hmm. The more you know. No, small world doesn't really. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, because, like, we've been playing his sound, and didn't, I didn't have any idea, and then you just did an episode about him. Yep. Well, referenced him. I love China. Please don't. We got all kinds of good sounds. All right. I'm going to start, okay? Roll the music. Amelia Earhart, who lived a fascinating life and left a legacy on the aviation industry, disappeared without a trace somewhere over the Pacific Ocean in 1937. Or did she? This is Country, Country Roads, Roads Creeps. All right. So um, I learned so much about her doing the research for this podcast. Like, thank you, thank you. I have 22 pages of notes. That's my personal best. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, Three-hour podcast. She is so cool, which we already knew. We already knew she was super cool. Mm. But even, like, 
I'm going to ignore that because you're going to make me mad. Um, (laughs) Even before we get into her aviation career, like she did so many things. She went to different schools. She had so many jobs. She's just a really cool lady. So this is going to be kind of like a biography of her life. And then we'll get into the famous event that we all know with the missing plane. Then I'll talk about some theories and then the new stuff that's popped up. Malaysia Flight 370, right? No. Incorrect. Save that for another episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to start with her early life, all right? She was born Amelia Mary Earhart on July 24th, 1897, and she was born in Atchison, Kansas. Hope that I'm saying that right. Her father was Samuel Edwin Stanton Earhart, so he went by Edwin. Her mother was Amelia Amy Otis. So um, Amelia was the second child actually born to her parents, but the first one was still born in August 1896. So she was born a year after that. Um, she was born in her maternal grandfather's house. He was named Alfred Alfred Gideon Otis, and he was kind of a big deal in the town. He was a former federal judge. He was president of the Atchison Savings Bank and just like a respected a respected citizen. So her grandparents were pretty well off. Um, and that helped Amelia's family too. However, Alfred did not really like Edwin. Um, he didn't approve of his marriage to his daughter at the beginning and thought Edwin wasn't making good progress as a lawyer. So there was like a little bit of tension, yep. but I guess they got over it. And um, they had a family custom at the time. And following that custom, Amelia was named after her two grandmothers. So Amelia Josephine Harris and then Mary Wells Patton. That's where Amelia Mary came from. She had a younger sister named Grace Muriel Earhart, born in 1899. And when they were growing up, Amelia was nicknamed Mealy or Millie, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I read that that's because that's what Grace called her when she was little. I guess couldn't fully say Amelia, and it just kind of stuck. Yeah. And Grace was nicknamed Pidge. <laughs> so I don't know where that came from. <laughs> oh, Millie and Pidge. And they, they kind of kept those nicknames up into adulthood. Yeah. Um, so they, it's said that Amelia was the leader and Grace was the follower, but that they they got along, like they did everything together. They just kind of yeah. had that older sister, younger sister dynamic. Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, every time there's like a famous thing, it's like you kind of think about like their their siblings, like the the only reason that anybody knows her name is because her sister disappeared in a plane or something. Oh. And then like, I don't know. It's worse, like, if somebody does something bad, I guess, but, like... Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'm sure her sister did cool stuff, too, but this she's just not the focus of this episode. I did mention her a little bit later on, and she's doing something good, so we'll go oh. back to that. Um, so their mother, Amy, raised both the girls in a way that was pretty unconventional at the time. She dressed them in bloomers, which were more like pants, instead of the traditional dresses that all the girls wore. Mm-hmm. And Amy's mm-hmm. mother... Amelia Earhart's grandmother did not approve of this. Um, However, Amelia liked the freedom of her clothes, but she was aware that there was judgment for that. But she still liked it because she was really adventurous early on in her childhood. She and her sister both were described as tomboys, and they liked to explore outside, climb trees. Um, They hunted rats with rifles. (laughs) They would go sledding. They kept worms, moth, katydids, and toads like in a collection. So they, they liked to be out doing things. Nothing wrong with that. No. Yep. So, they, yeah, they just were raised a little differently than most girls were at this time period. Yep. So, um, in 1904, Amelia was inspired by a roller coaster that she had seen in St. Louis. 
and her uncle at home helped her build a ramp and attach it to the roof of their tool shed. And then she went down that ramp off the shed in a wooden box. Um, ended up broken at the bottom and gave her some minor injuries, but she loved it. And she told her sister that it was just like flying. So maybe like a little bit of that's where that came from in her childhood. A little bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in 1907, her father Edwin was working as a claims officer for the Rock Island Railroad, and he got transferred to Des Moines, Iowa. Um, they, Edwin and the mom, Amy, moved to Iowa, but like the house that they got was pretty small. So um, Amelia and her sister stayed behind with their grandparents, and they were homeschooled during this time. Um, it was reported that Amelia loved to read, and she would spend hours in the family library. Because, again, I said earlier, the grandparents were pretty well off, so they had a large library at their home. Yeah. Um, that's what you would love to have. You would love to have, like, your own. Like a huge library in yeah. my house. I could just spend you, all my time in there. Yeah, I would love like that. like to read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be great. So, um, in 1908, the family got to go to the Iowa State Fair together. And this is where Amelia saw a real airplane for the first time. Um, however, she was not as interested in it as you might have guessed. <laughs> oh, oh, <hang> on. <laughs> what? I, for some stupid reason, I for you said the state fair, and I was like, "Oh, that's how she got interested into cows." But it's not the first. Lady, so, <laughs> We're not talking yeah, about Simple not, Grand anymore. It's like I don't, I don't know why that came up, but no, that's so. that's funny. Um, Edwin tried to convince his daughters to go for a ride on the plane because it was like a passenger plane you could get on. But Amelia said it was a thing of rusty wire and wood and not at all interesting. And she asked to go on the merry-go-round instead. Yep. I thought that was funny because we probably would have expected her to be interested in the plane, but she was not. Yeah. Yeah. So the next year in 1909, the family was reunited and they were um, the girls were able to go live with the parents together in Iowa. And Amelia started public school in seventh grade when she was 12 years old. So things were going pretty well for the family for a while when they got their new house. But some troubles started to come in 1914 because Edwin was struggling with alcoholism. And he kind of got forced into retirement because it got bad enough that he it just like wasn't doing his job. And they kind of just like let him retire, I guess. Did he get sick um, from it? Uh, I didn't really say. I would assume probably if it was that bad. So he did try to get rehabilitated. He got treatment, but he never was able to get back to work with that same railroad again. So during this time period, um, the grandmother, Amelia Otis, died and left her estate to her daughter, Amy, because she was afraid that Edwin would waste all the money drinking. So she didn't let him have access to it. Um, the grandparents' house was auctioned off, and this devastated Amelia because she had spent so much time growing up there. Like she stayed with her grandparents a lot, and she mar- she marked this as the end of her childhood. So then, in Whoa. 1915, Edwin got a job as a clerk at a different railroad. This one was the Great Northern Railway in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Amelia started at Central High School as a junior. Then, um, this this part was a little unclear. I'm not exactly sure all this how this happened. But Edwin was set to transfer from his job to Springfield, Missouri. So that was already set in motion. But then I guess the person he was supposed to be replacing changed their minds and decided to keep their job, and Edwin was left without a job. I don't really know exactly how that happened. It's, kind of it's a little confusing. Odd. Yeah. It's kind of like the offer got um, 
revoked. Yeah, and and I guess he had already given up what he had originally, and he was left jobless. Already put in his two weeks notice. Yeah, and then he was still struggling, again, starting to struggle with alcoholism, and he couldn't find a job. So I guess Amy um, had had enough of that, and she decided to move herself and the girls to Chicago to stay with some friends. Yeah. Chicago, and Edwin the windy city. Did not go with him. City that never s- sleeps. The wind never sleeps there. <laughs> Something like that. Now, when they got to Chicago, Amelia took it upon herself to search around the different high schools um, because she wanted to find the one with the best science program. That's what she had started to be interested in. And she didn't want to go to the one that was closest to her new home because she went and looked at it. And she said the chemistry lab was just like a kitchen sink. So it didn't have enough for her. So she ended up picking. Hyde, I think Hyde Oak High School, but she was really unhappy there. And I thought this was so sad. For her yearbook quote, she put A.E., the girl in brown who walks alone. Isn't that sad? She didn't really Mm. have any friends. Sounds perfect to me. (laughs) Like she, and she had moved around so much. So it would be hard to keep friends like that when you're always moving around and. It's the early 1900s, and you don't really have a quick way to talk to people. Everybody told her that she's always keeping her head in the clouds. Oh, my gosh. Am I right? Boo. (laughs) Wait, I have that. (laughs) Yeah, that was bad. Okay. So she did graduate from high school in 1916, and she started at a junior college, but she didn't finish the program. Um, And throughout her adolescence, she kept a scrapbook with newspaper articles about successful women that she was reading about in other fields that were mostly dominated by men. So she was pretty interested in seeing women that were doing things that they traditionally had not done. And she ends up being a big advocate for that. So it it kind of inspired her to do something similar. Do you have any of those? Um, No, I don't have her scrapbook. Is Madame Curie on that, like... Time period? Uh, I think that was earlier. Let me look it up really quick. She discovered, don't tell me, she discovered the, she discovered radiation, I think. <laughs> um, she, I mean, like, yeah, she did research on yeah. radioactivity. Uh-huh. She was alive from 1867 to 1934. So, like, kind of same time period. Yeah. Yeah. I knew it. Okay. Anyway, back on track. Um, so we're up to Christmas time, around Christmas time in 1917. Her sister, Grace, was living in Toronto at this time. So Amelia goes to visit her. And this was like during World War I. And so while she was there, Amelia saw soldiers returning that had been wounded. And this prompted her to go get trained by the Red Cross as a nurse's aide. And she started working at the voluntary aid detachment at Spadina Military Hospital. Did you cut yourself with that medal? No. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay, that scared me. (laughs) Uh, So while she was working at the hospital, she helped make food for the patients that had um, more like special dietary needs. So she would work in the kitchen and help prepare those meals. And she also passed out medicine and would just go around and talk to them and kind of provide company. And this is where she started to hear stories from military pilots that sparked her interest in flying. (laughs) So... (laughs) In 1918, this this part's sad. She was still helping at the hospital when she got really sick with pneumonia. And I think you say this sinusitis. Is that right? 
You are asking the wrong person about pronunciation. Yeah, you're right. I don't everybody, know I everybody asked. listening knows that. Well, you guys know what I mean. Big bad sinus problems. She was really sick, and she actually got hospitalized from November to December, two months after she first got sick. So this was lingering. Um, she had pain and pressure in her head and like around one eye. You know, when you get a really bad like sinus infection, your eye hurts. Yeah. And your brain feels like it's going to explode. Um, your nose feels like it's going to pop out of your face. Yeah, she had lots of drainage into her nose and her throat. And they didn't have any antibiotics for her at this time. So they would try to like wash I'm, out her sinuses. But it hadn't her been invented yet. Right. Her sickness was just like so bad that the sinus washes didn't really work. No, at that time, they didn't have antibiotics to treat this. At all? They didn't have anything? I think there were like early is, is ones, like but it wasn't for Does this. That count? Um, let's see. Is man, I keep, was penicillin. I keep asking questions. That no, I penicillin wasn't invented until 1928. Whoa. This was 1918. Yeah, too bad. So they're too just sad, trying to like dog. wash her sinus cavities out. Um, but yeah. she was so sick, it wasn't working. And she, she really was sick for almost a year until it just kind of ran its course. Like she was yeah. bad off. I couldn't imagine like it living in a world without mucinex. Like, right. Or like a can of saline where you can just shoot it up there. That's what they were doing, right? They were washing it out with water. I guess. Yeah. But it it's, didn't really help. She needed antibiotics. They did, didn't exist. Think, when they did that, did they film a TikTok about it? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. So, uh, while she was sick, her sister and her moved to Northampton, Massachusetts. Like, her sister got a house there, and she stayed with her sister. And she spent the time reading poetry, studying mechanics, and she learned to play the banjo. Bling-a-ding-ding-ding-ding-ding. Ding, 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 <laughs> that was a little fun fact. Um, so, unfortunately and really sadly, she did have lifelong complications from this illness, and later on, when she got into flying, she sometimes had to wear a bandage on her face to cover, like, a small drainage tube that went into her cheek to help that stuff drain out of her sinuses and, like, get the pressure out. What? They yeah. had, like, a what? She had a drainage tube on her cheek. It went through it, her cheek into her nose? I don't know if it or... went through. I think it maybe, like, came out of her nose and was taped to her cheek. I don't know. Huh. I wasn't okay. there. All right, so now we're going to move into some of her early flying experiences and how she kind of got into aviation. So Amelia um, eventually did recover enough from her illness to visit an airfare with a friend in Toronto. So she's back up in Canada. Um, there was a World War One ace, like a uh, pilot, I guess. Yeah, we love aces. Yeah, and he was flying, and he saw her and her friend watching him fly kind of from a clearing, they were sort of standing off to themselves, and he made his plane dive at them and like go over them. And yeah. Amelia said, I did not understand it at the time, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. So that was a big moment for her. Um, so there's a guy who was in the Air Force, I saw like a podcast clip from. I wish I remembered which podcast it was, or I would say, but. He basically, he was talking about aliens, and he said when he was in the Air Force that they would, uh, you could see, because they if they're flying at night, they use like uh, night vision technology. Mm -hmm. It amplifies light, and so you can see a campfire from miles away with night vision. And um, so they would, what they would do is they would fly really, really low, and they would cut back on the engines, and so you basically, you couldn't hear it coming in. 
and they would fly really, really low right above this campfire. And then they would pull it like 90 degrees up and then hit the afterburners uh-huh. and scare campers. But <laughs> they're like, he goes, immediate UFO sighting. <laughs> so, so some of the UFO sightings that people have seen while like they're out camping, like very well might have been just fighter planes. Just messing with <laughs> people. Like people training. Yeah. That is really funny. All right. So in 1919, she was planning to attend Smith College where her sister was going, but she changed Shane, if you stab me with that medal, I'm calling the police. I'm putting it away. <laughs> okay. Um, she she changed her mind, and she went to Columbia University to study some more medicine. Um, but she quit the next year to because her parents got back together, and she wanted to go spend time with them and where they now lived in California. So on December 28, 1920, she and her father, Edwin, went to an aerial meet at Daugherty, Daugherty, Daugherty? We're, we're doing great with the words today. Oh, yeah. We're Field lucky it's not a medical episode. In Long Beach, California. And while they were there, she asked her dad if he could ask about flying lessons, and he did. And she got registered for a passenger flight for the next day at Emory Rogers Field. So she's going to get to go fly with somebody. It cost $10 for a 10-minute flight with Frank Hawks. And I think that was like a lot of money at that time. $10. Uh, in 1920 something? Mm-hmm. Huh. I should have looked it up, but I didn't. I didn't think about it. Until right. That's probably like, shoot, <laughs> undo. What was? Good thing uh, we have Google pulled up in front of us right now. Inflation is the craziest thing because, like, it wasn't that bad until, like, the 70s and they, like, they went off the gold standard. And then the people point to that date and they're like, we went off the gold standard here. Mm-hmm. And then inflation took like a gigantic spike and it's kept rising ever since. And it's the craziest chart to ever look at. Well, according to Google, $10 in 1920 is worth about $160 today. Knew it. For a 10 minute flight. Um, And she flew with a man named Frank Hawks, who later would become famous as an air racer. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. So this flight really changed Amelia's life and set her on the path to become a pilot. It helped her solidify like this is what I want to do. So the next month she hired a flying instructor named Netta Snook. So she um she flew with Frank and then she hired a woman named Netta Snook to help her learn how to do it. Yeah. So the rate was five hundred dollars for twelve hours of instruction. Is that five hundred dollars in that day's money or five hundred dollars today's money? That day's money. Five hundred dollars mm-hmm. in that day's money. To be so that's today. That's, that's like, like fifty thousand between seven to eight thousand. Seven to eight thousand. Golly, seven yeah. to eight thousand dollars a day. It's expensive to learn how to fly a plane. Man, I couldn't imagine spending <laughs> seven thousand dollars to just end up disappearing over the ocean. That so. was really callous, and <laughs> you should feel bad for saying that. Spoiler alert. Because that's not all she did. She had so many accomplishments, and she was really important. I know. I'm waiting yeah, for your you'll listen. information. <laughs> so, obviously, she had to save up for that because who has $7,500 laying around? Um, her grandparents, and they left, <laughs> they left her the money. No, they left it to her mom. Her mom's got the money. Well, it was like in, part of it was in the house and stuff. Uh, so, uh, Amelia, she worked a lot of different jobs to save up for this because she really wanted it. She worked as a photographer, a truck driver, and a stenographer for a phone company. And her mom did give her some money to help, even though she said it was against her better judgment. 
she did help yeah. Amelia pay for it. What's a stenographer? Um, it's a, you've, you've probably heard of a court stenographer. They take the notes. They type really fast, like in shorthand. Oh, they have the special keyboard. Yeah. So, but she, so she was doing that, but not for court. She was doing it as like a telephone operator person for a phone company. So a note taker. You have to be oh. fast and you have to know all the shortcuts and stuff. Hmm. So um, she had a lot of skills. I mean, she's, she's doing everything. Um, she got she her. do a kickflip. <laughs> Probably. I bet she could. Yeah. I bet she could. But. So she had her first flight lesson on January 3rd, 1921 at Kenner Field. And that was in a Curtis JN4 Can- Canuck that her instructor had salvaged from a crash. So Netta Snook had restored it for training purposes, <laughs> which sounds really scary to me, but I guess they were no, comfortable fine. with it. <laughs> I'm sure if it's like refurbished or whatever, then it's fine. But yeah. it's just, it, I don't know. The. <laughs> <laughs> The just the concept of like, hey, this plane was in a crash and I saved it. Last month, a guy crashed his plane, yeah, <laughs> and we put it back together with with zip ties and hundred mile an hour tape, and so <laughs> it's good to go. And <laughs> so to show you more of like how dedicated she was to doing this to get to the lessons, Amelia had to take a bus all the way to the end of its line and then walk four more miles to get to where the lessons were. So she was pretty dedicated. Yeah. So as, as she got into it, she ended up cutting her hair short like the other female pilots. And six, it's a good look. Yeah. I like I like a girl with short She hair. was very pretty. The, I posted a picture of her. She like, was beautiful. The girls who do like the shaved part of the... <laughs> that's solid. Okay. Her ten. head wasn't shaved. It was just short hair. I'm just saying. <laughs> Shout out that hairstyle. Okay. <laughs> six months later in the summer of 1921... She bought a used Kenner Airster biplane against her instructor's advice, but she did it anyway. It was bright chromium yellow, and she nicknamed it the Canary, which is super cute. It's funny that it was yellow because I've only seen her fly a gray airplane. Because the pictures are black and white? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Ha, ha, ha. Is there a black she also bought a new leather <laughs> flying coat after her first successful solo landing, but she got teased for it because her coat looked too new. The other pilots teased <laughs> her, which is kind of, I don't really get that, I guess, maybe because it yeah. shows she was a newbie or a rookie yeah. or whatever. Um, but because of that, she slept in it and stained it with aircraft oil to make it look more broken in oh so she wouldn't get teased. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Um, now we start to get into some of the accomplishments she had. October 22nd, 1922, that she flew to an altitude of 14,000 feet and set a world record for female pilots. So this is like a year and a half after her first flight lesson, she set a world record, which is pretty amazing to me. It, what if what if it was just an accident the whole time? She's like, <laughs> she didn't mean to go that high. <laughs> she didn't mean to go that high, but she can't. Now she's in too deep. <laughs> No. Then on, and that was actually before she was licensed because on, I guess so she was still learning and training. On it wasn't until May sixteenth, nineteen twenty three, she became the sixteenth woman in the United States to receive a pilot's license. So she was setting world records before she was even officially licensed as a pilot. Good for yeah. her. She did begin having some financial problems throughout the early nineteen twenties. You think it had anything to do with the eight thousand dollar flying lessons? Yeah, and the plane she bought. Yeah. Maybe. It probably had more to do with what I'm about to say. Okay. Um, she invested in a gypsum mine that failed 
And that was a big blow. <laughs> he lost yeah. a lot of money in that. Nobody's even, literally no one's ever heard of gypsum. So <laughs> and gypsum salt, right? You put on your feet. Epsom, uh, never mind. Epsom. Forget, forget <laughs> I said that. Never mind. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know, the gypsum salt that you put on your feet. Go ahead. Keep further the notes. Okay. Um, and also, the inheritance that she did get from her grandmother had run out. We're laughing. <laughs> no, that's so funny. It's not. Epsom salt. Okay, so she had to sell her planes. She sold the Canary, and she had purchased another second one. She had to sell both of them. That's the gray one. That's she ran out of money. She bought a yellow Kissel Gold Bug Speedster, which was a two-seat car that she named the Yellow Peril. Kind of funny that her plane and her car were both yellow. Yeah. Yeah. She Later on, um, she had a red plane, but the first one and then her car were both yellow. So maybe she liked that color. Uh, at this time, she had a reoccurrence of her sinus problems that was pretty bad, and she had to have a, a full-on like operation for it, but it wasn't very successful, and she was kind of still suffering from her sinus issues. Yep. Um, during this time, she didn't have enough money to fly anymore, so she tried some other jobs, which included setting up a photography company, but she still just wanted to fly. It just wasn't financially possible at this time. Now, in 1924, her parents officially got divorced. And she began driving across the country with her mother and her little yellow car that she got. And they kind of just traveled across the United States. They made stops in different places, but they eventually stopped in Boston, Massachusetts. She had another operation on her sinuses, and this one worked better. So she got a little bit of relief, finally. Um, after she recovered, she went to Columbia University for a few months and wanted to go to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but she had to give up on that because she and her mother couldn't afford it. Is that MIT? Uh, you know, probably. I hate to say yes to that and be wrong and look dumb. I also hate to say no and be wrong and look dumb. But probably. Yeah. You, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You're never going to look as dumb as gypsum salt. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Quit picking on me. Jeez. <laughs> okay, so she was out of money again. She got a job as a teacher. And then as a social worker in 1925 while living in Medford, Massachusetts. So this is what I was saying. Like, she had so many different jobs, and she went to several different schools. I just think that's so cool. Like, she just did what she had to do and tried different things out yeah. and got by. Do you imagine, like, being able to do that in 2024? Uh, no. <laughs> you, can, you can barely afford to go to one school. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Yep. Anyway. Um. I mean, so during this time, she was having to do all of these different jobs, but she was still interested in flying. And she became a member of the American Aeronautical Society and got elected as vice president of the Boston chapter. And then she was able to start flying again out of the Denison Airport in Quincy, Massachusetts. Because the way I understood it when I read it is that she took the money that she did have that she was making. And kind of helped invest and fund the development of this airport. So I guess it was it was new. And she flew the first official flight out of that airport in 1927. Whoa. So she kind of got back into it a little bit since she had been working and getting some money again. Oh, no. What? A couple of years from then is the Great Depression, isn't it? Can you stop asking me questions that I don't know the answers to? You're making me look real dumb. I think it was 1929 and she's going to lose her planes again. Um, Very sad. She, she doesn't, if that makes you... It was 1929. You're smart. I'm so smart. 29 to 39. And? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I guess she makes it out okay of the Great Depression because I didn't even think about that while I was doing this episode. Yeah. Okay. Uh, She was also a sales representative for Kenner Aircraft, and she wrote articles for the local newspaper to promote flying and, like, specifically to help promote female pilots and get that to be more accepted. So she was a a big proponent for, like, women's rights and equality and did a lot of work in that area also. So now we are getting to the point where she starts to— really make some progress in the aviation industry. So we are in 1927, and Charles Lindbergh made his solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. And after this, there was a woman named Amy Guest who became interested in being the first woman to either fly or be flown across the Atlantic Ocean because a woman hadn't done it before. Um, She ultimately decided that the trip felt too dangerous for her personally but she offered to sponsor the trip for another girl with the right image, is what she said. Like a like a short hair, a short haired girl with a yellow plane. <laughs> she didn't have a yellow plane anymore. She had to sell it. Remember? Oh yeah, a gray plane. <laughs> she didn't have any planes. Yeah. She had a yellow. Bug. She had an airport though. So. Kinda. <laughs> it was like had ownership of it. Definitely had stock. Know. Like. All right. Anyway, April nineteen twenty eight. Captain Hilton H. Riley calls Amelia and asks her if she would like to be the one to do it, to go across the Atlantic. The project coordinators asked her if she would join Wilmer Stoltz, who was going to be the pilot, and Louis Gordon, the co-pilot and mechanic, as a passenger, but also to keep the flight log. So she wouldn't be piloting, but she would still be going and keeping the log for them. Did you say no? She said yes. Oh. So, um... Side note right here, one of the project coordinators was a man named George P. Putnam. I need you to remember him for later. What does a P stand for? I don't know. <laughs> um, he was he was a book publisher and a publicist and kind of like helped organize this trip. So just remember him because he plays a big okay. role later on in the story. George P. Putnam. Yep. So um, she obviously says, yes, she's going to be the first woman to, even though she's not flying, she's being flown across the Atlantic Ocean. And a girl hasn't done this before. So she and the crew fly for 20 hours and 40 minutes from Newfoundland to South Wales on June 17th, 1928. And after the flight, um, they're like talking to her, interviewing her, asking her how it was. And she said, Stoltz did all the flying, had to. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. Maybe someday I'll try it alone. Foreshadowing. Whoa. Yeah, so, um, like, it was cool, but she's she's saying, I didn't really do the work here. I just was there. So when the crew returned to America on July 6th, there was a big parade for them in Manhattan, and they were honored by President Calvin Coolidge at the White House, and her fame really continued to grow from here. Like, her name's out there now. People recognize her, and she's kind of starting to be a big deal. Now, some um, publications thought that she actually resembled Charles Lindbergh, and she kind of does. I looked at a picture of them both. And they they do look a little bit alike. The press had been calling him Lucky Lindbergh, and so they started to call Amelia Lady Lindy and, like, started connecting them. Okay. Yeah. But the United Press called her the reigning queen of the air, which, as they should, because she was. Queen. Slay queen. <laughs> yeah. So she did a lecture tour from 1928 to 1929, and George Putnam, the guy from earlier that I told you to remember— he promoted her George by, P. Um, yeah, George P. Putnam. He pu- P stands for plane. <laughs> Let me finish this sentence. <laughs> George Plain Putnam. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
He promoted her by publishing books that she wrote. So she's also now an author at another job to her career list. She's like Barbie. She's done it all. Yep. Uh, and he arranged. Does she have a kin? Uh, not yet. Oh. Not at this oh, point yet. in the story. He arranged more lecture tours for her. And he used her pictures to endorse products, including women's clothing. And that was kind of cool because for her clothing line, she like helped design it and create it. And it was like an active wear line of clothing for women. So it was more functional clothing than the dresses and stuff, you know? Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Like and, dry fit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he also um, had her pictures being used to endorse Lucky Strikes cigarettes. The cigarettes thing caused her some problems. Like she got an offer dropped from McCall's magazine because they didn't like the image, but she made good money from it. Like it was a good move. She was sponsored by a cigarette company. That's yeah. Baller. Well, like it, she advert she helped with their advertise. She they used her picture in their advertisements. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She yeah, was yeah, like yeah. the face. Yeah. Like uh she was like the uh she was like that time that Drake did uh that Sprite commercial. I don't ever know that one. That was way back. Never mind. <laughs> okay, but she like got good money from that. She was able to donate fifteen hundred dollars to fund Commander Richard Byrd's expedition in the South Pole. Oh, we're gonna do that in Are a, we? a we future really? episode. Uh huh. Yeah, a hundred percent. Have you never heard of that? Um, I didn't recognize the name. I had listened to a podcast episode about somebody else that was in the South Pole. Oh, but pal. I think it was a different person. We are gonna get crazy. Okay, so all of this got her more money to keep flying, and at another job, she also became an associate editor for Cosmopolitan Magazine, and she focused on writing about aviation and the acceptance of women pilots. Like, she's just so cool. She's doing everything everywhere all the time. She's so cool. Yeah. Uh, like, how did you even have the energy to do all of these jobs? It's awesome. Very inspiring. Like, I can barely do one job. Like, she's doing yeah. 25 of them. We can barely do our day jobs. And a podcast. And a podcast. Yeah. And, like, and like yeah. Yeah. Just, and that's not all. In 1929, <laughs> the Transcontinental Air Transport chose her to promote air travel for women, and she also became vice president of National Airways. And then just, this is another little, little cool thing she did, a little tidbit I threw in. In 1934, she helped a woman named, listen to this name, Isabel Ebel. E-B-E-L. Isabel Ebel. Okay. She, she helped her get accepted as the first woman student of aeronautical engineering at NYU. She has done so much good yep, stuff. That's very good. Yeah. Yes. So she um, gained fame when she flew across the Atlantic with the men, but she wanted a record and accomplishments more of her own, like that yeah. she's done herself. So she does exactly that. In August 1929, she became the first woman to fly solo across North America and back across the continent. And then, so she gained respect of other pilots from that. She continues to grow her connections with important people. And in 1929, she tried competitive air racing for the first time at the first Santa Monica to Cleveland Women's Air Derby, and she got third place in that. Ooh. And then in 1930, she joined the National Aeronautic Association, and she became the first president of the 99s, which was a group of female pilots that, like, helped each other. What does the 99 mean? There were There's, 99 of them. Oh. <laughs> they, <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> There's, 
like one other lady wants to join and they're like, mm, too bad. It's, there's <laughs> yeah. not enough room. So there's yep. already enough. And her accomplishments don't stop there. On April 8th, 1931, she set a world altitude record of 18,415 feet. So she's doing a lot. She's a busy lady. Now, uh, you asked if she had a kin. Um, she was engaged to a man named Samuel Chapman, who was a chemical engineer from Boston. Okay. But she broke the engagement for reasons that I am unaware of on November 23rd, 1928. Yeah. Now we bring back George P. Putnam. Oh, yeah. George, George Plain Putnam. Putnam. Yep. He got divorced from his wife in 1929 and started Ooh. pursuing Amelia. <laughs> Maybe that's why she broke it off. Yeah. There's some speculation. Oh. Um, she likes the guy. There's no. George. Well, no. Because. I'm going to say no because he proposed to her six times before she said yes. Six times. Hey, you know, <laughs> got to be persistent sometimes. You know? And like part of part of the reason why she was hesitant to get married is because she is such an independent woman. Like she's all over the place traveling, doing all these accomplishments on her own by herself. And so she was hesitant to enter a marriage because especially at that time dynamics were different it was like you know what i mean yeah like it was like the man was in charge and in control and told you what to do yeah so that's why she was hesitant but she did say yes after the sixth proposal and they got married on february 7th 1931 in george's mother's house in connecticut and then i believe they lived in new york now from the get-go to george Amelia was very clear that she wanted to maintain her independence, and she wrote a letter to George for him to read on their wedding day that said, and I quote, I want you to understand I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. I may have to keep some place where I can go be by myself now and then, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage. So George must have been cool with this because <laughs> Amelia later on, when asked about their marriage, she described it as a partnership and said they had dual control, which we know was not really common for that time period. Yeah. So that's cool. Like she was happy in her marriage. George knew what was up and knew that he was marrying a strong independent woman and respected her for that yeah. and didn't try to control her. So that's cool. I think I'm missing some of the language there because she said that he's not going to, she's not going to hold her. She's not going to hold him to a medieval form of faithfulness, and he shouldn't hold her to that. Is is I don't think that mean, I don't think she meant it in the context yeah. of like an affair. I think she meant it as in like she's the not going to just relationship? be submissive and listen to what he yeah, wants. Okay. Like she's still going to be her own, be in control of herself. Yeah, because my immediate thought was like, you can cheat on me. But, <laughs> no, I don't think in the context of like the time and what she was doing with her oh, life, I don't think that's how she. Now, was. whose phone is going off during the show? It wasn't mine. Mine has been was on it silent. Not? It was yours. Shane's trying to call me out, and it was not my phone. <laughs> it wasn't mine. It wasn't mine. <laughs> it was yours. 100%. Okay, so they have a good marriage, and she would not allow herself to be called Mrs. Putnam. She kept her own last name, and George actually ended up being called Mr. Earhart most of the time because hmm. she knew what she wanted. 
So they did not have any children of their own, but George had two sons from his previous marriage that Amelia was pretty fond of. I think their names were David and George. The son was also named George. I didn't put this in my notes, but I just remembered reading it. His ex-wife, I think her dad was like a founder of Crayola. There was some kind of connection of hers to Crayola, which is Hmm. not important to the story. I just remembered reading it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Mr. Crayola. (laughs) Now, now we're going to get into her big solo flight. This is not, not the one where she disappeared. Her first big solo flight. Across the North America. No. Well, I guess not her first big solo flight. Her big one across the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Because remember, she went with the men, and she said, someday I want to do this on my own. And she did it on May 20th, 1932. She was 34 years old. She flew out of Newfoundland with the intention of going to Paris, because she was going to cross the Atlantic Ocean by herself. Um, She flew for 14 hours and 56 minutes, and conditions were not good. She faced really strong northerly winds. It was icy. She had some mechanical problems. And instead of making it to Paris, she actually landed in Derry in, in Northern Ireland. But either way, she still crossed the Atlantic Ocean. So she was the first woman to do that solo, like totally by herself, nonstop across the Atlantic. And be, sorry, I got the hiccups. Let me get a drink of water. <laughs> Please hold. Oh my gosh. Now who has the hiccups? And their phone's going off during the show. And... Can't pronounce any words. Yeah, now the shoes on the other <laughs> table, the turntables have put the other shoes on. <laughs> okay. Um, for this accomplishment, she got the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress. She got the Cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government. And huh. she got the Gold Medal of the National Geographic Society from President Herbert Hoover. And this accomplishment also allowed her to meet Eleanor Roosevelt, and they ended up becoming really good friends, which I love. Um, The Beatles wrote that song about Eleanor Roosevelt. Okay. (laughs) Remember? I don't think so. The people will get the reference. Okay. Don't worry. So she had some more important solo flights after that one. On January 11, 1935, she was the first to fly solo from Honolulu, Hawaii to Oakland, California. That same year, on April 19th, she did it from Los Angeles to Mexico City. Is Hawaii to California further than, like, the closest, like, Atlantic flight, like, Newfoundland to Ireland? Uh, No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, uh, wait, are you saying is it shorter or longer? What was the question? Is is Hawaii further from California than the Atlantic Mm. flight was? My gut instinct is to say no, but I don't know. Okay. I think Hawaii is like way Somebody, yeah, yeah. Somebody comment and let us know. I didn't look that part up. Yep. Because there's just so much cool stuff to write and to talk about. Yeah. I just, the, I I always like. There's like already so many details in this. I didn't. You know, when you look at a map and it shows like America and then it's got Hawaii down there, you don't really realize how far away it is. Yeah, you're right. Also, when people talk about Cuba, you're like, yeah, that's down like near South America, but it's like literally 50 miles from Florida or something like yeah. that. It's super close. It's a little distorted on a map. So um, She did another big flight from Mexico City to New York on May 8th. And between, so between 1930 and 1935, she had set seven women's aviation records for speed and distance. Seven records in five years. Okay. So she's I, crushing it. I don't want to downplay her accomplishments at all. 
and I don't want this to come off that way. Uh-huh. But she's also like like the what was it, the, it, the 16th she, lady to ever even fly. That she was the 16th so, to get her license, but yeah. you you have to remember how much advocating she was doing to make females yeah. in aviation more popular. So she was not the only female pilot at this point in time. She was just the the best. Yeah. There were I, others that she was like competing against. I just I'm she I'm had she had a like, rival too, but I don't remember her name. The, like there were there was definitely the competition. Red Baron. <laughs> she no, was I just get, the best at it. I get that. I just when when you're telling me this stuff, I'm imagining like there's like ten women and she's like <laughs> Okay, then you ignored all the other stuff I said about how she was like promoting it and no, getting I, it more. No, I get accepted that accepted and stuff. I just like as you're telling me, I'm like there's, because I, I think at the time there was like airplanes had just been invented and like my sense of the time is very distorted and like the airplane was invented last week and now she broke oh. <laughs> the record. And so, no. and there's only like 10 people flying planes and like, mm. it's like, uh, you know what I'm saying? No, Looking, there was definitely a lot more. Because remember she had those I, other, um, there was the other female pilots she was looking up to that she cut their hair to be like them. Yeah. Like, so there was definitely other, and like she was learning from a female pilot. Yeah. Nettie. Netta. Netta. Yeah. Okay. Um, so by 1935, she got the idea to fly around the world and she began to think about how she would need a new plane in order for that to be possible and like how she could make this happen. But before she could get the new plane, something bad happened. Oh. So she was traveling on a speaking tour in November of 1934 and her and George's home caught on fire and destroyed most of their stuff. So they decided to kind of start fresh. They move over to the West Coast, and George got a job as head of the editorial board of Paramount Pictures in North Hollywood. Um, while they were there, Amelia got in contact with a Hollywood stunt pilot named Paul Mance to help her train and like get better with the plane. And she wanted to move clo- to be closer to where Mance was so she could keep working with him. So George bought them a house in June 1935 that was where she wanted. And in September of that year, Amelia and Paul Mance officially created a business partnership and they created the Earhart Mance Flying School. And George handled publicity for the school. So they were all three like working together. So that's pretty cool. Okay. Now we get to the part that we're all familiar with. The around the world flight that did not go so well. It went decent. It didn't. Like the first half. Yeah, <laughs> first two thirds. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. So this is 1935. Amelia joined Purdue University to help counsel women on careers and to be a technical advisor for the Department of Aeronautics. 1936 is when she began planning, really planning the flight to go around the world. So she had the idea, but this is when it like started to come to fruition. So other people had done this before. She wasn't going to be the first to fly around the world, but her flight was going to be the longest because she wanted to follow the equator, roughly. Yeah. So. That's cool. Purdue, the the university, helped finance a plane for her. And one was built by Lockheed Aircraft Company to specifically meet her needs for this trip. And Amelia called it her flying laboratory. (laughs) So she chose a man named Captain Harry Manning to be her navigator. And he was, he was very qualified. He had been captain of a ship named the President Roosevelt, but he was also a pilot, and he was a radio operator that knew Morse code. 
So he was very qualified. He was good at his job. Mm-hmm. However, during the test runs, Manning made a couple slight errors that made um, Amelia and George a little wary. So that led to them hiring a man named Fred Noonan to be a second navigator. So they kept Manning, but they also hired Fred Noonan. <laughs> so there's two of there's two now, now to like join Amelia's crew. So their new plan was that Fred Noonan would navigate from Hawaii to Howland Island, and then Manning would continue with Amelia Earhart to Australia, and then she would go on her own from there. So they would help her navigate through those parts of the trips, and then she would finish kind of by herself. Yep. So the crew first attempted the flight on March 17, 1937, and the first leg was from Oakland, California to Honolulu, Hawaii. A ton of things went wrong on this first attempt. Oh, good. A lot of it was like mechanical issues. Um, they had problems when they tried to take off in Hawaii. The plane got pretty damaged. Um, they just kept getting delayed. There were a lot of problems. Now, Manning felt that the trip had been too delayed with too many errors because after they had this like failed first attempt, the first of all, the plane had to be repaired, which takes time. And also, they had to raise more money to try again. And he had, like, a different job that he had to get back to. And he said he couldn't take any more time to do it. So he kind of backed out. So that left Amelia and Fred Noonan. Yeah, sorry, my vacation days are running dry. I mean, pretty much. He had taken a leave from his job, and he's like, I can't stay anymore. That leaves Amelia and Fred. Neither of them are very skilled with operating the radio. That was really Manning's expertise. (laughs) So don't laugh at that. It's not funny. It's sad. You know what's about to happen, and it's not funny. I just... It's like doomsday here. <laughs> okay. So, while the plane is getting repaired, <laughs> um, Amelia and Fred get more funds for a second attempt. This time, they're going to fly the opposite direction. And they go from Oakland to Miami, Florida, kind of like on the down low. And then they left from there on June 1st and made a few stops until they arrive in New Guinea on June 29th, 1937. So when they get to New Guinea, 22,000 miles of the trip have been completed. So next was 7,000 miles over the Pacific. Are they landing when they do this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to, like, stop and refuel and get supplies and stuff. Right. Okay. It's not, you, it's, you can't go nonstop around the world. <laughs> you, you have to restock. Can we, is it possible now to go the entire way around the world nonstop? Uh, Wasn't there somebody that did that in a balloon once? I don't know. <laughs> or is that like know. a movie? That's Gulliver's Travels. I think. <laughs> okay. So the, they left from New Guinea on July 2nd, 1937 at 10 o'clock a.m. to head toward Howland Island. I'm just realizing I wrote 10 o'clock here, but I don't know if that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it would be because... Well, I don't know if that's right, actually. That doesn't make sense with the, what the notes I'm about to tell you. Maybe there was a time change or something. Just ignore that time. That might not be right. But they are trying to go towards Howland Island. It takes them about, it should have taken them about 20 hours. And this is where things go totally wrong. Did you find what you were looking for before I get into this next part? No. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to find it? It's going to take a while. I don't know that it's possible to go. I don't, I would say no. Completely. I think so that would take but, a long time. Anyway, are you ready? Yeah, I've, I've been ready. 
Okay, well, what are you looking for? The I'm looking for <laughs> around the world flight. I I don't think it can happen. I th- okay. I, th- I don't know. I think now you could refuel midair. I think you. Oh could yeah, it, probably. I forgot that was an option. I just I'm trying to find like around the world in one trip, right? Or- okay. Well, let's come back to it because minimize it. I, you can't be fixated on it right now. We're to the most dramatic part of the story. Okay. This is the climax. So I need your full attention for this. <laughs> Shane. Go ahead. No, you're looking at your computer. You're fixated on it. I'm, and it's all you're going to be thinking about now. So let's pause and find the answer to the question. Okay. Okay. I'm going to help you Google because I, I know it's all you're going to think about and you're going to miss the most important part. Can you fly around the world nonstop? Let's see. Yeah, somebody did it on, in 1986. On December 14, 1986, Richard Rutan and Gina Yeager flew a canard wing plane Voyager and took off from Edwards Air Force Base, California. Carrying an unprecedented load of fuel, it took the aircraft nine days, three minutes, and 44 seconds to become the first aircraft to circumnavigate the globe nonstop without refueling. Really? Yep. Huh. Uh, but, like, you can't get on a commercial plane and do it. You can fantasies. you can buy world round tickets that take you like to different cities. I saw one the yeah, first but not nonstop. I, yeah, but I was saying the the first one of the first links that I looked at it was you can go around the world and you can buy a ticket and it'll take you to fifteen cities. Okay, can we get back to this now? Because it's like the biggest part. Yes. Okay. All right. So, like I said, this is where things went bad. So there was a U.S. Coast Guard ship named the Itasca, and it was stationed at Howland Island because its job was to, it was supposed to communicate with the plane and help guide the men because the island was really small. So they were going to help the plane get their bearings and like direct them into this island to land. Now, something went wrong with the radio communication. There are a lot of complicated details of what might have happened with the radio that I am not smart enough to understand. (laughs) But if anyone is interested in those details, just get on the Wikipedia article. There's a whole section about all the different possibilities of what could have caused the radio to not be working the right way. Like it was just not the right kind or an antenna got damaged when they took off from New Guinea. There's a bunch of different theories of what happened to the radio. But all we really need to know is that it wasn't working right. Something with the technology or the frequencies Or it could have been user error because Amelia and Fred had both made mistakes with the radio during their test flights. Um, But either way, it was just not good. So on the plane, they were able to send some messages to the ship, but they couldn't determine its location. And the the ship could hear the plane, but Amelia could not hear the voice messages from the ship. And she couldn't read Morse code. So they weren't able to communicate with each other. Now, this is the the really sad part here. So the first radio calls from Amelia and Fred came in around 2.45 a.m. and then at 5 o'clock a.m. on July 2nd. And these were just routine. They were reporting that the weather was cloudy, overcast, nothing out of the ordinary, though. The calls at this point were staticky, but the plane would have still been pretty far away from the ship at 5 a.m., Now, at 6.15, 
they radioed and said that they were within 200 miles from the ship and asked for the Itasca to use its direction finder so that they could get a bearing in the plane. And Amelia was whistling into her mic like to help the ship try to find her signal. This is when the ship realized they couldn't connect with the plane's radio frequency. They could hear Amelia, but she could not hear them. One of the radio men, Leo Bellarts, stated that he was sitting there sweating blood because I couldn't do a darn thing about it. Sweating blood? Yeah, that's what happens when you're like incredibly stressed. They say that Jesus sweated blood on the cross because of the stress to his body. Yeah. So the plane radioed again at 645, asking for a bearing when they were 100 miles away. Between 730 and 740, the Itasca radio log recorded the message from Amelia Running out of gas, only half hour left, can't hear us at all. We hear her, or they were they were talking about her. They said, we hear her and are sending on 3105 ES 500, same time constantly. Then at 742, the log said, from Amelia and Fred, Itasca, we must be on you but cannot see you, but gas is running low, been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. Okay, so then at 758... Amelia again says that she could not hear the ship and asked them to try sending voice signals. They were close to the ship at this point. They could tell by the volume on her radio, but she still couldn't find it or the island. The ship wasn't able to send voice messages at the right frequency, so they sent Morse code. And Amelia acknowledged receiving the Morse code message, but she and Fred couldn't decode it because they didn't have Manning. And they were kind of relying on the voice radio message here. So the last known transmission was at 8.43 a.m. Amelia said, We are on the line, 157-337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6210 kilocycles. Wait. And a few minutes later, she added, We are running on line north and south. Now, the Itasca, um, it, they, have, they just cannot contact the plane. They turned their boilers on to make smoke in the hopes that the plane would be able to see it. But that didn't work either. Maybe because it was cloudy and overcast, like they said. But everything they tried just didn't work. So about an hour after her last transmission, the ship began searching for the plane but didn't find anything. And the U.S. Navy also searched that area for about three days. And then there were that was unsuccessful, so more search efforts are expanded. Like there's different agencies and different people coming in and expanding it farther outwards, searching, searching, searching. Nobody finds anything. Now, a week after the plane disappeared, a naval aircraft that came off of a battleship called the Colorado flew over Gardner Island, which is about 400 miles from Howland, and it had been uninhabited for 40 years. But they reported um, seeing signs of recent habitation that were clearly visible. You knocked over your mic this time, not me. (laughs) The tables have turned. (laughs) How do you feel about that? Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So they saw uh, signs of habitation, but they couldn't find any, like, they didn't find any life. Like, there was stuff there that made them think there were people on the island, but they didn't find anything. They saw a shipwreck that had been there from a while back, but no plane, no Amelia, no Fred, nothing. So official search efforts ended on July 17, 1937, with zero evidence of Amelia, Fred, or the plane being found. 
Now, George Putnam, her husband, organized his own private search to keep looking. He didn't want to give up. And back in the United States, he became the trustee to what was left from Amelia's estate so he could use the money to pay for the searches and the related bills that came later on from the searches he organized. In order for him to do that and like to have access to her money and stuff, she had to be declared legally dead. Now, this normally would have had a seven-year waiting period to be declared dead for someone that had disappeared, but that got waived, and Amelia was declared legally dead on January 5th, 1939, two years after she disappeared. Hmm. Now, I have theories. Um, do you want to say anything before we get into the theories of what happened to her? Some of them are a little wild. No, not really. Okay. Um, I assume we're going to get into, they think they recently found. Yeah, that's at the end. Yeah. Um, Can I guess a theory? Yeah. Okay, I think that she didn't fly around the world because she flew off the edge of the flat earth. I hate you. (laughs) You're the worst. I think that it was all a ruse and she pretended it. Uh, That's one of the theories. Um. And I think that could it have been for the insurance money like the Titanic? (laughs) No. (laughs) Oh. All right. So here's some theories. The first one is just called the crash and sink theory. This is the most common, most widely accepted theory is that they just ran out of gas and crashed into the ocean. I know what's wrong with it. Uh, There There ain't no gas in it. (laughs) So there's some details that differ here, such as what exactly went wrong with the radio, where exactly she crashed. But the main idea is that even though the plane should have had more than enough gas to make it to Howland Island, that there were just some navigational errors that caused them to be too far off course. They were unable to get their bearings in enough time, and they had to crash land into the water somewhere around the island. Now, there's not really been proof for this, but it's one of those things where it's kind of just accepted because there's not proof for anything else either. It's just the easiest to believe and the easiest to explain. Yeah, the Occam's razor kind of argument. Yeah, so... Then, So that's the crash and sink theory. Now we also have the Gardner Island hypothesis. So for this theory, people believe that once Amelia and Fred realized they could not find Howland Island, they would have used their remaining fuel to search for someplace else to land. And they think of Gardner Island as being one of these possibilities. So as I said earlier, during that initial search, a Navy plane saw signs of what they deemed to be recent habitation on the island And they found parts of a boat that had shipwrecked there before in 1929, but they didn't find anything that pointed towards Amelia or Fred. Now, around April in 1940, um, so three years after she disappeared, a skull was found on the island. There was a British colonial officer, Gerald Gallagher, who learned about this in September of 1940, and he organized a more thorough search of the area that found more bones, a bottle, a shoe, and a sextant box. I looked up what a sextant was, and it's a navigation instrument used for celestial navigation, like using the stars to navigate. And that did happen to be Fred's preferred method of navigation. So he would have had one of those to use. So that made people think that, that's why people thought that they did end up on Gardner Island. And the box that they found had the serial numbers 3500 and 1542 on it. However... Later, it was discovered in October of 2018, so not that long ago, by the National Archives and Records Administration 
that there were some documents showing that the USS Bushnell had a sextant on board with the serial number 1542, which was the number on the box. And that ship had been to the island before the skull and the box were found, so it's way more likely that the tool came from that ship and not from Amelia or Fred. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they had papers that said they had that tool with that serial number on it. So that kind of negates that theory. Um, now for the bones that they found, those were sent to Fiji, and on April 14, 1941, Dr. D.W. Hoodless from the Central Medical School examined them and found that the skeleton would have been shorter than Amelia Earhart was, and the bones belonged to a male. Now, they didn't say anything about whether they thought that might have been Fred or not. He wasn't really mentioned in that conversation. They just determined that the bones did not belong to Amelia. So, like, maybe, but I don't know. Hmm. I didn't really look into that. Um, But in 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery arranged for a bunch more research trips to try to figure out what happened again. They went to Gardner Island, and they found improvised tools, an aluminum panel, an oddly cut piece of clear plexiglass, and a size 9 woman's shoe heel. When I read that at first, I thought it said, like, a high heel. Yeah. Uh, but it, it just meant, like, the heel off of a shoe. Yeah, just the... The, the back part, yeah. yeah. So Rick uh, Gillespie was the head person of this group, and he said that the aluminum panel had the same dimensions and rivet pattern as what was shown in a picture of Amelia and her plane, he said, to a high degree of certainty. However, in July 2017, staff from the New England Air Museum found the rivet pattern on that piece of aluminum exactly matched the top of the wing of an airplane called the Douglas C-47 Skytrain that they had in their museum. And this type of plane had crashed on a nearby island during World War II, and villages confirmed bringing aluminum from that wreck over to Gardner Island. So it's a lot more likely that it came from that plane than Amelia's plane. Right. Now, for the heel of the shoe, it did match the style of a pair that Amelia had been photographed wearing, and it matched the time period, like they determined it was made in the 1930s. But where it was from a size 9 shoe, um, they think that would have been too big for Amelia. They they think she wore maybe closer to a 6. Oh, okay. So they're saying it probably wasn't hers. Um, Now we start to get into more of like the conspiracy ideas. Oh, boy. These are a little crazy. Here we go. So we have the Japanese capture theory. Yeah. Okay. So this is the idea that Amelia and Fred were captured by Japanese forces after they somehow managed to land somewhere within like the Japanese South Seas mandate. I don't know too much about that. Um. But this theory started in 1966 when Fred Gorner, who was a CBS correspondent, wrote a book that said Amelia and Fred crashed on Saipan. But that's over 2,700 miles away from Howland Island. And they know for a fact that they were near Howland Island because they were talking to the boat. They would not have, they would not have had enough gas to go almost 3,000 miles farther from there. So whatever, that doesn't make sense. But later believers of this theory started thinking she crashed into Marshall Islands, but that's still 800 miles from Howland. So that doesn't really seem plausible to me. But anyway, people believe it. And in 1990, Unsolved Mysteries did an interview with a woman from Saipan who claimed to have seen Amelia and Fred be executed by Japanese shoulders, shoulders, <laughs> soldiers. But there's literally no proof to back that up. I was like, She just said I, it. There's no proof. I thought you were about to say... They did an interview with a woman who claimed to be Amelia Earhart. Oh. 
<laughs> no. Now, there were some pictures that came about at the time that claimed to show Amelia as being captured, um, but these were all either proven to be fake or they were taken before she went on her last flight. So there was really not proof for this. Now, others have said they believe the Japanese shot down the plane instead of crashing and then capturing them, that they just shot them down. Um, and then in 2012, an author named Mike Campbell wrote about witnesses in the Marshall Islands who claimed to have seen the plane crash. But guess what? There's also no proof of any of this. None of it. Yep. There's really no way they could have flown that far. And there's, n I don't know that there would have been a reason that the Japanese would have killed them and kept it a secret. Like, they could have gotten good credit for saving them. I don't know why that would have been kept a secret if they did have them. The Japanese weren't known for being friendly at this right, time. Right, but if they history. did it, wouldn't they have wanted credit for it? They weren't known for being very friendly at this point in history. I th right. But I'm saying, like, if they like, killed them or shot them down, do you, would they have wanted credit for it? I don't... Or they would have wanted it to be secret. They probably wanted would have wanted it to be... Secret, yeah. Okay, I they, didn't really know enough about that. Yeah. But either way, they couldn't have made it that far. They don't have the counting gas for that. Yeah, I don't... I, I think, like, like during this time, there were... Well, for this period, like, into the 30s and stuff, they, they were having some strained relations with the United States and a few other parts of the world, and mm -hmm. there were some issues with... Uh, there were some issues with China at one point, and yeah. Okay, anyway, moving on. Um, There's also a theory that they were uh, spies for Franklin D. Roosevelt. They were, yeah. People said that, no, that Amelia was a spy. She was. You're being annoying. <laughs> she <laughs> proved me wrong. So that was a myth, that she was spying on the Japanese in the Pacific Ocean for FDR. Obviously, there's no basis for this. That's um, why they shot her down. It was... Likely inspired by a movie called Flight for Freedom that came out in 1943, which was a fictional story about a female pilot who goes on spy missions in the Pacific. So people saw that movie and started saying, oh, that must be what Amelia did. Whatever. Um, then there was a theory called Tokyo Rose. So people claim to have heard Amelia Earhart doing propaganda radio broadcasts as part of Tokyo Rose. So I did look that up, and that was a thing where... Um, Japanese women that could speak English were like would get on the radio and like put out propaganda to try to like demoralize American soldiers and stuff. Yeah. And so people were saying that they were hearing Amelia doing this, but her husband, George Putnam, listened to a ton of these messages and never recognized her voice in any of them. So that was just like a hysteria thing. Okay, now there was we have we have two more, two more theories. One was called New Britain. This was the idea that Amelia might have turned around mid-flight and tried to reach New Britain. Now, this theory exists because in 1990, a man named Donald Angwin, who was a veteran from the Australian Army, claimed that he found a plane wreck in the jungle there on April 17th, 1945, that might have been Amelia's. And my question is, why did you wait so long to say something, my guy? You found this plane wreck in 1945 and didn't think to mention it until 1990? That you thought of might have been Amelia Earhart's. What is New Britain? It is like kind of sort of near New Guinea, sort of. Let me show you on a map. Papua New Guinea. Hold on. 
where those guys are. On New Britain. On. Well, that brings up Connecticut, and that's not the one that he was talking. He about. turned around and landed in Connecticut. It was not. And here, then this one, and that's where George Bush is from. You New Britain that? is the largest island in the Bismarck Archipelago, part of the island's region of Papua New Guinea. So Papua New Guinea. A good map to show you where those guys are. Is that next to Madagascar, where that lemur is? That guy. Jane, and, stop asking me questions that you know I don't know the answer to. Sorry. <laughs> Just thinking out loud. I don't know anything about anything. Here's a map. It's here. <laughs> that doesn't help you. It doesn't matter for the story, okay? Okay. He, the, what matters, focus on what I said, is that he waited almost 50 years to speak yeah. up about it. It's like, what are you doing? He said that he and the other soldiers he was with wrote down serial numbers from the wreckage and marked the location on a map. And that map was found in the possession of another veteran in 1993. So the serial numbers did match parts that could have been on Amelia's plane. But when researchers went to that area that he marked, they did not find anything that showed a plane wreck. I personally feel like this dude and his buddy could have just made this story up. Yeah. Um, oh, I did write down. Okay. I, I did look it up a little bit. New Britain is 2000 miles away from Howland Island. So also don't think she could have made it there either. <sighs> All right. Now. <laughs> We get to the last theory. This one is so dumb. It's so wild and so dumb, okay? And it's called Assuming Another Identity. Don't look at my notes. Let me tell you. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in 1970, Joe Kloss wrote a book called Amelia Earhart Lives, and that was based on research done by a dude named Major Joseph Jervas, maybe? It doesn't matter. The claim was that Amelia survived the flight, Moved to New Jersey, remarried, and changed Hannah, her name Hannah. to Irene Craigmile Bolton. What? Gervais. Gervais. I was like close. Ricky Gervais. It's the same spelling as I said Gervais. Ricky Gervais. I don't know who that is. He's a comedian, okay. a British comedian that guy. That wasn't that far off. That was pretty close for a guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Since your brain got stuck on ah. that, I'm gonna repeat the last thing I said. He claimed that she survived. Moved to New Jersey, got remarried, and changed her name to Irene Craigmile Bolum. She did. Now, Irene was a real lady. She was a real person. She was a banker in the 1940s in New York. Obviously, she denied being Amelia Earhart. She filed a lawsuit for $1.5 million in damages, mm -hmm. submitted an affidavit to deny the allegations. Um, the publisher of the book, which was McGraw-Hill, we all know them, they pulled it off the shelves, and there was an out-of-court settlement for Irene. Um, and then researchers like dug deep and documented Irene's life history and confirmed there was no way that she was Earhart. And it was also documented that she really didn't even look like her. Like they had major facial differences. Like, so this poor lady just got picked to be a part of this insane theory yeah. and it was proven incorrect. Like stupid. Okay. Now we get uh, to the part that everybody can, has seen. What? You could see the, uh, like, the, I guess the plausibility there, if you're just telling somebody the story and it's like, yeah, she denied being Amelia Earhart. It's like, yeah, if you were trying to assume another identity. Right. But I don't, I don't know how they just picked this poor random lady to take on that role. It's so dumb. But um, so that being said, those have been the reigning theories up until now we have a new discovery. 
Oh, boy. So the, the creep factor in this episode, oh why boy. we picked it for Country Road Creeps, is that for 86, 87 years, she has just been gone without a trace. Yep. Like, we have these Vanished. things that were found, and people are like, maybe this was it, but then it comes out, oh, no, it wasn't. That was from this ship, or that was from this plane. Yep. So everything that is possibly a lead has been debunked. So for 87 years, she's been gone without a trace, just disappeared, and Fred... However, there's now a company called Deep Sea Vision that says they might have found her plane. So Deep Sea Vision is a marine robotics company from South Carolina. So supposedly they have used undersea scans to get a sonar image of what might be her plane. This happened like between September and December. Um, the CEO, Tony Romeo, says the image shows what looks to be a plane on the seafloor about 100 miles from Howland Island. So that's actually a reasonable distance, unlike these other things that are 2,000 miles away. What they have found is only 100 miles away from where she was trying to go. Okay. It's about 16,400 feet down. So for reference, the Titanic is 12,500 feet down. This is 4,000 feet deeper. Okay. It's It's way down there. Oh, 16,000. Yeah. Okay, I thought you said 1,600, and I was like, that's no, not... No, no, no. The Titanic's 12,500 feet down. What they have found is 16,400 feet down. Man. So f- about 4,000 de- more deeper. They should send that one place, that other company down there to get it. Shane. <laughs> <laughs> You're done. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> Tony Romeo says another trip is being planned to get more visuals and more evidence. The date hasn't been set yet, but it should be sometime this year. But their first like trip to find this and do this was eleven million dollars. So Golly. Yeah, I'm sure it's gonna Whoa. because they were using like these crazy underwater drones and they were searching like a huge area and so what so what was the original was it they were trying to find the aircraft, her aircraft, or they were so. just studying the sea. You know, actually I don't really know. I don't know if they were looking for a plane or if they were doing something else and this was a happy accident. Mm, Okay. And then say, but I, I looked at the sonar image and is it junk? No, it's not. Does it look good? It does. Yeah. Okay. So like it is, it is kind of blurry. It is blurry, but it really does look like a plane. Okay. All right. Now I still remain skeptical. I'm all in. I know. I want it to be. I want it to be so badly. I do remain skeptical because of all these other theories and hypotheses that I just read that people believed for so long that turned out to be debunked. This could just be another one of those. But it's only 100 miles away from where they knew she was close to. And it really does look like a plane. I don't know. I want it to be real so badly, but that remains to be seen. It's not. It's definitely not confirmed. How would they find out? Like, do they, I mean, they're going to regroup, plan yeah. another trip to try to go down deeper now that they have the location. Yeah, they're going to go like, like zero in on it. They're going to go get it, or like, I don't know. Because what they had was like it was sonar. So they did it when they found it. They didn't know right away that they had found it until they were going back and reviewing like all their stuff. And then they were like, holy crap, that looks like a plane. So they had already, they were already out of like the water. So yeah. they have to regroup and plan a new trip to go back to that spot. I, uh, I kind of imagine like 
I know it's not like this. This is totally unrealistic. But like if they go down there in like one of those underwater submarine things with a yeah. camera, like <laughs> National Geographic style. Yeah. And they go in front of the plane and it's like a it's like a skeleton with a bomber jacket on. And they're like, that's Aww. that's her. That's sad. I just wanted to see how deep submarines can go. They go deep. They go, um, you know, at least 12,000 feet before they get crushed. Um, according to all the science.org, specialized military submarines can go as deep as 4,265 feet. So this is about 12,000 feet deeper. Nice. So I guess you got to get like one of the special cameras or whatever. Um, okay. So that's all of that. Now, something else really cool happened right before you okay. came over to record. Great. Okay. So like that, that was going to be the end of the episode. However, stop peeking at my notes. Let me tell you the story. Okay. Turn my computer. You're about to ruin this. Okay. Okay. So I had, I was done. That was going to be the end. Okay. Literally an hour before you came over here. You texted me. Yeah. I shared the post you made on Facebook that said what our episode was going to be about. Okay. And mine and Dirk's friend, Abe Lilly, called me and said, hey, did you know that Amelia Earhart visited Concord? which is now it's Concord University, but it used to be Concord College when it was a teacher's college. And this is in um, Athens in Mercer County, West Virginia. So kind of, this is a hometown West Virginia story because it has a connection. Yeah. (laughs) Sort of. She she visited, passed through town. We're like, this is a West Virginia (laughs) story. This is a West Virginia story because she was here. Okay, so um, Abe Lilly, our friend, he was the past assistant director of the Marsh Library at Concord University. Okay. Um, he was the archivist there from, he said about 2010, 2014. So one day while he was working, he found like a flyer, or I guess you might call it a playbill, from when Amelia Earhart had visited Concord. Like I said, it was Concord College at the time. He just found this by accident when he was going through the archives. It had been like stored Ooh. away somewhere. Yeah. And he just came across it. And so he actually helped preserve it. And the playbill showed that Amelia visited Concord to do a speech or like this presentation about aviation. Mm-hmm. And it's so cool. It has her autograph across the front of it and it's on display in the 1872 room at Concord. So people can see it there. He sent me some really great pictures of it, of what it looks like. So we'll put it in the photo dump because they're super clear. Like you can zoom in and see all the details and the writing on it and everything. And I'm actually going to pull that up on my phone really quick because I want to read you some things okay. from the, from the playbill. It's super neat. Okay, so on the front, it has her picture. It says, Amelia Earhart, world's premier aviatrix, appearing personally to tell her story of aviation. And it has stamps at the bottom that says, Concord College, January 14th, 8 o'clock p.m., admission 50 cents, um, reserved seats, call college for tickets. And then on the back, it talks like a little bit about her biography and all her accomplishments and stuff and says what she's coming to talk about. And this, the, the year on it, this was 1936, one year before she disappeared is when she came and um, spoke at Concord. Oh, yeah. I like her haircut. Yeah, she's so pretty. Oh, yeah. So I thought that was love it. Short hair really queen. cool. And Abe also told me that he would be happy to help us more on future episodes because you had talked maybe about John F. Kennedy, and he said JFK also visited Concord. 
So if we do that, like, and he, he like apparently knows a lot about history and stuff. He's had several different jobs that are among the same thing. So he said he would keep an eye on our Facebook posts. And if it's something okay. that he knows cool things about, then he will help us and call us. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. I thought that was awesome. Cause yeah. I mean, I had no idea. That's not something that comes up when you do research that she came to this little college in yeah. nowhere, West Virginia, you know, that's um, so neat. And that he found that and helped preserve it. And it was just like forgotten about for who knows f since 1936. Did you know that really cool John F. Kennedy also visited Hinton and there's a picture. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that picture in Hinton and mm -hmm. they've got, it's changed a lot since the good old days. So yeah, I just thought that was really neat and it was cool that he saw it and was able to tell me like right before we recorded so I could put it in here and now we have the pictures to show everybody. Okay, so the the very last little thing I want to say to wrap this up, because this has been the longest episode I've ever done. Um, there are two cool places that you can visit. I'm sure there's more, but these are just two I wrote down. So they're both in Atchison, Kansas. The first is the Amelia Earhart Birthplace Museum. You can go on a tour there for like 10 bucks. They also have virtual tours available, and you can go through the house that she was born in. And then the other is the Amelia Earhart Hangar Museum, um, it's located inside the Amelia Earhart Memorial Airport, and the tour is, I think, $15. They have a virtual reality flight you can do that mimics hers across the Atlantic. And then they also have on display the world's last remaining Lockheed Electra 10E aircraft, which is identical to the one that she flew in on her last trip. And it's named Muriel, after her sister, Grace Muriel. And they have other interactive things that you can see, and both of those places have websites. So that is the end. I know that was a long one, but she just did so much that I wanted to mention because she was amazing. Like, she was so determined. She was so brave. She did a lot to help women, and it was just, she had an amazing life that ended a little tragically, but she was doing what she loved, and she was trying something new, and she's just so cool. So, the end. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yep. Big fan of Amelia Earhart. Yeah. She's cool. She definitely is. She, yeah, very good. <laughs> Anything you want to add? Mm, no. Um, uh, Grafton, the Grafton monster festival thing we found. Oh, yeah. I found by myself without any help from <laughs> Hannah that the Grafton monster is getting its own festival in West Virginia. I sent that article to which, Shane. That's not true. <laughs> Um, so then, uh, when is that? What the article that I sent you, when did it say that that was? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it had been set yet. Yeah. They, but it's they're getting, just saying like, it's going to exist Yeah, because we have the Mothman festival. We have the Bigfoot festival. And so, and, um, and Flatwood monster. Yeah, yeah. And so Grafton monster is going to have its own thing. Yep. And cryptid bash it works. Love cryptid bash. I can't wait for that again. Yeah. It'll be fun. Um, really cool. So, so I think I will, I'll probably also do next week's episode cause you yeah. did two in a row. Mm -hmm. So I did this one. Don't know what it's going to be yet. Never know until like two days before. Um, but it's okay. It'll be something good. Um, I am going to do Admiral Bird next. Okay. Since we mentioned it. The South Pole dude? Oh, more than the South Pole. And I'm not going to spoil it. So. But people who know will know. If you know, you know. 
Hannah doesn't know because she's not based and <laughs> like the rest of us are. But uh, oh, I, I just remembered the, who I was thinking of when I said I listened to a podcast about somebody in the South, South Pole. I listened to um, Ernest Shackleton. He did a big exploration down there. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm excited to hear yours because I don't know about that dude that you're talking about. Admiral Byrd. That'll be good. Was he was an admiral and he flew a plane to uh the South Pole and that's it. <laughs> okay. And nothing weird happened. And he came back and went on a talk show and said, Yeah, South Pole's cool. <laughs> nothing weird. Very cool. So all right, so I'll do I'll do another one. You'll do Admiral Bird, and then yeah. we'll start banking up. If anybody has made it to this point in the episode, we're going to bank some mini episodes because this summer you have a fishing trip that yep. just so happens to be the same length as the average maternity leave. Yep. Um. So trip. we're going to have some episodes banked up that we can use this summer since you're going to be otherwise occupied. <laughs> yep. Catching, catching fish. And that's all. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really, I can't wait until it's fishing weather again. Because I know, like, you can fish, like, all year round. It's just kind of miserable in the winter because the fish aren't really that active. And they, they like, uh, you just, it's cold. And... They're not active very much, and then it's just not, it's no fun. But then in the summer, in the spring, they do the spawn, and they start feeding up for the spawn, and then they get really, really active. And then they get active, like, during the spawn, and then after the spawn, they have a little bit of a post-spawn feeding, and then it's the dead heat of summer, and they kind of get less active again. And then they feed up for winter again, and fall fishing is really fun. So. There you go. There's your fish fact for the day from Shane. Yep. I love fish. <laughs> All right, let's... And oh, you know what else I love? What? My podcast partner, Hannah. Thanks, buddy. Love you, too. Now, don't mess up the outro this time or I'm taking that back. Redeem it. <laughs> um. Try it. Do it right this time. I'm tempted to do it. It's been three in a row. You've butchered it. <laughs> Fix it so we can get a five-star review again. I've totally forgot to mention because we were talking about other stuff. Follow us on the stuff and leave us five stars. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and? Thanks for listening. <laughs> Be safe driving home. Watch out for the not, dear. Bye. Bye. <laughs>